Well, good morning. Welcome if you're visiting to here this morning. My name is Tony and I'm pastor here at LAFC and we're going to be talking about that term here this morning a little bit. And so I'm going to ask you to turn your Bibles to John chapter 10. John chapter 10. And to uh, just give a little context to uh, John chapter 10 is that we are in the midst of a series called Encounter Jesus, where we're looking at the book of John, where many of these statements about Jesus helping people understand who he is comes out of an encounter where somebody needed a little bit more information to understand just who it is they're talking with. And, uh, and as a result, you know, creating now the understanding in, in, instead of misunderstanding, but also creating... Uh, clarity for purpose going forward. And so in this particular encounter, we have a situation where Jesus had uh, healed a young man who had been born blind. In John chapter 9, this young man was, was uh, basically begging at the gate uh, leading into the temple. And he had been known by the religious leaders as being this blind young lad. And and they had probably watched him for years, uh, begging there at that gate. And then Jesus shows up. Jesus shows up, and there is this encounter where he heals this young man and helps him to see for the first time in his life. Now, you need to understand that in that time, it was taught inappropriately uh, that if somebody was born blind or they were born with some kind of physical abnormality, that they were basically born with sin, steeped in sin. They were a greater sinner than anybody else. This was not a case where it was just sinner slash like all of us. No, they were the worst of sinners if they had such an abnormality that they were born with. And so this young man was seen as a deep sinner in the eyes of the religious leaders and by the way they taught by the rest of the culture. But Jesus had compassion he reached down, he pulled this man up and gave him sight. And so this man, uh, his miracle was not lost upon those who had been across his path before. And, and this created a dilemma because, again, people were growing in their, their uh basically their infatuation with Jesus and all that he was doing with his power and so on. And it was a threat to the religious leaders of the day. So they decided that there was going to be a way that they could try to navigate this where they could show that Jesus was a fraud and that he should be called out for his act of healing on a Sabbath. And, but it did not stick as this young man's testimony was something that they couldn't walk away from. It was truly a miracle. And how else can you explain it except for the power of God through Jesus came upon this young man and gave him sight. Well, this enraged those religious leaders. And so what did they do? They kicked the young man out and called him a sinner of sinners, that he had no right to ever worship there again. So they operated as the shepherds of Israel in a manner that was harsh, critical, and unfair and unjust, and also chose to be the gate to decide who belongs in the kingdom of God and who does not. Jesus takes offense to both the way they led and the fact that they were making decisions that were God and God alone as to determining who belongs in the flock and kingdom of God. 
So that brings us up to the text and, and giving context. And so Jesus addresses the Pharisees, the religious leaders. He had had enough, and he's going to call them out by giving two major statements as to who he is. So I'm going to read last week's text before we go on to this week. So beginning in verse 1. Very truly, I tell you, Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate but climbs in by some other way is a thief and robber. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls out his sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Jesus used this figure of speech, but the Pharisees did not understand what he was telling them. Jesus therefore said again, Very truly I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. But I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. So Jesus gives this contrast. These Pharisees had chosen to become the gate, saying, you don't belong because we believe that you were born into deep sin because you're born blind and now that you see you have no right to be among us and pretend that you weren't what you were they couldn't accept the miracles of Jesus and they became harsh shepherds now to understand the analogy by how Jesus is confronting uh, these Pharisees we have to get again back into the understanding of their more agrarian culture and their understanding of sheep sheep if you understand them as a mammal, are ones that very much are in need of leadership. They are in need of a shepherd who protects and cares. They also are in need of that protection in such a manner that, that nothing can get to them because they're very vulnerable. They have very little defense. And so when they're in the sheep pen, they need a gate that protects and identifies wolf from sheep, stranger that would harm, from shepherd that would care. Jesus says that he is that gate. But then he goes on to describe that, that in, those, in that pen were sheep of a flock that knows the shepherd's voice, that the shepherd is the one that can be trusted. The shepherd is the one that, that knows his sheep and knows them by name. Now, last week, I had a difficult task to stick with the I am the gate and to teach that without going too far into the experience of what a shepherd should look like. But today, we go there. We look at that not only is Jesus this exclusive gate, no one can get to God. No one can be made uh, righteous before God's eyes and come into relationship with him except going through the gate that which is Jesus. He is the exclusive gate. He is the one that opens it for those who belong in the flock of God. But he is also then the shepherd. He is the shepherd that cares for the sheep. Now, 
the Pharisees would understand that they do have a role as shepherds of Israel. Let me explain. There's a lot of history in the Old Testament and throughout Scripture about the meaning of shepherding. First of all, let's look at who was all shepherds in the Old Testament that were significant in the narrative of Scripture. First of all, Abel. Abel was the son of Adam and Eve. He was one of the first two sons. And Abel was a shepherd, and he made a sacrifice before the Lord, a blood sacrifice, that God felt was an aroma, a sweet aroma to his, his nose. And, and his brother Cain did not make a sacrifice that pleased the Lord. And out of rage, he killed his brother Abel. So the first one to die was a shepherd. The first one to sacrifice was a shepherd. And yet, as shepherd who sacrificed first, he himself then was the first to ever die. Moving forward, then we get the promises, the first promises of God come through Abraham. Abraham was a shepherd. Then later, Rachel was a shepherd. Jacob was a shepherd, the grandson of Abraham. And Moses was a shepherd, then called out to lead Israel. David was a shepherd who's called from shepherding the sheep to now leading Israel. And we have many others that left shepherding sheep to literally become leaders of Israel. 200 times shepherds or shepherding was mentioned in Scripture. Not all the time is it mentioned as something to be esteemed, as we know that in the Egyptian culture, they did not esteem. In fact, they were disgusted by shepherds. That's why they kept Israel separate from themselves when Israel was living in the land of Egypt. They were given a separate place. And so they were despised and looked down upon. But within Israelite culture, the shepherds were the true leaders of the flock. Psalm 23, uh, written as, you know, as by the psalmist as being one that talks about the shepherd being the, the care, caring leader that nurtures the flock. 1 Samuel chapter 17 is where David talks about that as shepherd that he protected the flock at night by confronting the lion and the bear. And then you see in Isaiah chapter 40 that God even describes himself as a shepherd, but one who cares for the vulnerable, the weak, and the injured. And you'll find in 2 Samuel 5 and Jeremiah 23 where the terms king and leader become interchangeable with the word shepherd. Then carrying into the New Testament, as the church was getting its legs and, and that first 20 to 30 years of church growing, it was referred to that, that all those various flocks that were, were growing but small to start were being led by people that were called shepherds. Acts chapter 20 verse 28 even charges that leaders should lead their little flocks like that of a shepherd. But more importantly, like that of the good shepherd. Now, you must know that in the first early parts of the growth of the church, Latin was a strong language that defined a lot. And it was the Latin term pastor that began to be ascribed to the leaders of churches. The word pastor means shepherd. So as the lead pastor at LAFC, 
I am then also referring to myself as lead shepherd. And that is no small task, especially when I am to get my cues from the good shepherd. And we'll go there here in a moment. So in their culture, they understood that when somebody is referred to as the shepherd, they immediately can ascribe it as a term of leadership that is protector and caregiver, nurturer and intimately aware of those that they lead. That is shepherd. And so now let's continue forward. As now Jesus has said, not only is he the shepherd that knows the sheep and knows them by name and they know him, but he becomes that gate, as he says, that's exclusive. He now says, I am, verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. So Jesus describes himself as the good shepherd, and in verse 11 in particular, as the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep, which is saying that he is the good shepherd who is all in. He is all in. There is nothing he's going to withhold from his resources to care and protect the flock. He is all in. And he is that shepherd that is willing to fight and die to save his sheep. Now David, again, was described as one of the greatest kings in Israel's history. He too was that very good shepherd when he was out in the fields caring for sheep that were not his own sheep. He was willing to fight even the lion and the bear to protect the sheep. He did not treat his role as shepherd like that of a hired hand who did not own those sheep and therefore protect his own life at the cost of the lives of all those sheep. He was willing to fight. In fact, when God describes himself as that good shepherd, he refers to uh, one of the aspects of this tenacity of, of how far he will go to protect his sheep. In Amos chapter 3, verse 12, it's a, it's a book in the Bible we don't often go to, but God describes himself as a shepherd who is willing to go to the mouth of the lion and retrieve the sheep, even if all he can rescue is a piece of the ear or two hind legs. Look it up. Amos chapter 3, verse 12. God describes himself when referring to Israel that was being under attack and, and was entrapped in Samaria. He says, I am that shepherd that will go to the lion's mouth, and if all I rescue is a piece of an ear or two hind legs, I will go. That's the kind of shepherd that God is, and that was the kind of shepherd David was, is that they were willing, even if at the risk of themselves, to rescue sheep. Which is why it's interesting, when you look at the idea of shepherd, we, we tend to think of more of a meek and mild type of individual. But the reality was, they must be strong, and they must be tenacious. When we look at the death of Jesus Christ, we kind of look at it as being something of kind of a passive act because he surrendered himself to that death. But let me tell you, Jesus' death was not a passive act. 
It was a tenacious one, that of a shepherd who was willing to lay down his life for the sheep. A tenacious one, nonetheless. You see, there are two types of shepherds that are out there. One that is all in, that will go to whatever means to rescue his sheep and to care for them. And there's the other that's like, it's just a job. It's just a job. And I'm only there to get paid. And when that's the mindset, when trouble comes like the wolf and comes to attack the flock, as he says in verse 12, he will run away because he is merely a hired hand in mind and heart and cares nothing for the sheep. You see, trouble has a way of exposing whether the shepherd's in it for himself or he's in it for the sake of the charge given. These Pharisees were not caring very well for the sheep. They were willing to be harsh, demanding, critical, and judgmental. They were willing to cast out people just because they didn't like them. Maybe they didn't even affirm them, and so just by mere act of selfish consequence, they would then kick people out and not give them the opportunity to worship and to find security. But Jesus, in complete contrast to that, says, I am a different kind of shepherd. Don't know me as the shepherd that would run away at the mere sight of threat. I am the shepherd that will run to the problem and rescue. I will run to the problem and rescue. But then when you look at verses 12 and 13 and you compare that to the higher hand, it's like when he sees the problem, what does he do? It's like, well, is that sheep going to make it if I rescue them? Probably not. So trying to rip at an ear or pulling two legs off seems like a waste of time. Seems like it's putting me at risk too much. So he doesn't run. Or the wolf is a wolf pack. It's like, yeah, these are my sheep anyway. I'm just going to run and flee. See, these hired hands were exposed for being a hired hand in mind and heart. You see, Peter understood that he had seen how the, the shepherds of Israel had treated their sheep. And now when Peter is talking to the church in 1 Peter chapter 5, he charges the leaders of the church, the elders and the pastors, to be good shepherds of the flock like Jesus, not like the hired hands of the past. Listen to what he says. It says, to the elders among you, be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, not lording over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. That's a charge that Peter, the apostle, gives to the leaders of the church, those who are going to be called elders, pastors, shepherds of the flock. And we're called to care. We're called to serve. We're called to model the example of the good shepherd. That is the calling of today's modern shepherds. We're not to abandon at the first sign of problem or harm, but willing to get into the messiness of people's lives. It is not easy to be invited into marital challenges that are within the church. Because more often than not, 
when you get involved with trying to help the marriage survive, you often become the blame for the problem. It's a strange thing how it goes, but when people are angry and hurt, they're not able to see very well where they're throwing their pain. Hurting people hurt people. It's just a reality. And if a shepherd avoids getting involved with a hurting person, they're doing so to preserve themselves. So that's why we continue to get involved in messy situations because that's what we're charged with. Even if it seems hopeless, if we are even grasping at the piece of an ear or two hind legs, we're called to be shepherds just like that of Jesus Christ. But there's another aspect that's not just about tenacity and caring in, in such a manner where things get difficult. But look at what also is a mark of a shepherd in verses 14 to 17. It says, Jesus again says the same statement a second time. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life, not only, only to take it up again, but no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord, because I have authority to lay it down and an authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. So he's a shepherd. Yes, I am the good shepherd. As he said in verse 11, I am the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. He now states again in verse 14, I am the good shepherd and I know my sheep and my sheep know me. So if Jesus is the good shepherd who is all in, even at the risk of himself and costing his own life, he is also the good shepherd who gets relational with his sheep. He is the good shepherd who gets relational with his sheep. Because his sheep are family. He treats them like family and even says that the, we are called the family of God. When we are a parent and we have children, we care about the safety of all our children. We don't say, well, if you have five children, you're number four. You're not important as much as number one. Or number five being the baby. I'm going to give them more love. Now, if you're number four in the room, I'm sorry just to bring that analogy. That was just, yeah, it just happenstance, right? But here's the reality. When parents have family, it doesn't matter how many children they have. They love on each one of the children. They know each of them by name. They know each of their quirks. They know each of their weaknesses. They know their strengths. And as a shepherd, you know how to lead each child well. That parenting shepherd is also the good shepherd in how he leads the church. He knows each of us each of us by name, and he's willing to do all that he can to see us thrive as part of his family. And he relates to us, and he even compares us in verse 15, and he goes, I know my sheep, and my sheep know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. So he compares to the same familial relationship that he has with the Heavenly Father. It's an intimate knowledge of you and me, an inseparable relationship. Verse 16 then shares something else that is very fascinating. 
I have other sheep, he says, that are not of the sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice, and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. Now, just to be clear, he is referring to Gentiles as one person wanted to bring out. And yes, I know that, that that's the case. But what he's speaking of is that in this point in time, the shepherds of Israel would have never considered anybody else to enter in except for Jewish people. Again, they were guarding the gate against that which God would have had them do. You see, he is not satisfied with the flock remaining just 99. We know this from Luke chapter 15 where Jesus gives the analogy that he'll leave the safety of the 99 to go get the one that is not there. You see, the shepherd is wanting to grow his flock. He is not meaning for this flock to remain just the number that it is. Case in point, when I was new to LEFC, it was an interesting uh, context that when leaving a church that was much larger than LEFC, people wanted to let me know their thoughts about the potential future of LEFC. And they would just say, I love your vision. And it it might be different the way they would share it. But basically, they'd say, we love your vision. We love your heart. We think you're going to do a good job as pastor here. But we don't want to become a megachurch. They had to throw that in. And I heard that phrase very often. And I would ask the question, like, what do you mean you don't want to become a megachurch? What's the fear? And they would share. And I'd say, so basically what you're asking for me, because I, I don't have a vision whatsoever to become a mega church. But the clear response to, and, and rejection of that is, a sheep is saying, I don't want too many sheep in the pen. That's not the heart of God. It's not the heart of God. And so what would it look like if our goal is to say, our goal, our vision for LAFC is not to become a mega church? What would be the principles we would have to practice to accomplish that? Well, I'll tell you. We'll start with, let's take some people from our doors and not greet you when you come in. All right? And then when you come in the door, we'll just start talking about how bad the people are that grew up in this culture in this county. That'll shrink the church real quick, wouldn't it? But when you offer a message of hope that is for all people, God's intent was for the gospel to expand to the entire earth. His commission that he gave the disciples was to make disciples of all nations, reaching all people, not being satisfied with where we stand. What if Jesus had the heart that I don't want to grow my church too big? Guess what? Many of us wouldn't be sitting here right now. Because his heart is that he wants just one more. Just one more. I watched a movie that really captivated me, the storyline. It's a movie called Hacksaw Ridge, and it's a true story of a young soldier during World War II that came out of uh, a Christian movement called the Seventh-day Adventist. They were pacifists by nature, very similar to much in our county here. And he did not want to ever lift a rifle, but he wanted to serve his country. And he had to fight for the opportunity to not carry a rifle. He was ridiculed. He was even court-martialed. But then given, finally, the freedom to serve as a medic in the military. He was shipped to the Pacific. And then there was this cliff 
known as Hacksaw Ridge, that they'd have to climb a net to get up on this ridge, and that's where the Japanese were. And they were calling it Hacksaw Ridge is because unit after unit would climb up that net only to see less than a third come back down. They were the replacements. They came in. It was already a bloodbath-filled ridge. They go up thinking that they're going to be the ones to turn the tide, only to be overrun. And his entire unit that was left, whatever was left of him, came down off those nets and got back down to the bottom. But he himself was stuck up there. And he could hear the cries of wounded soldiers around him. The night is starting to come down over them. And he's hearing these cries. And so he begins to rescue one by one and lowering them by a rope over this cliff at the cost of his own hands being ripped to shreds by the rope. I would think that he probably could have won the Medal of Honor if he had saved 10 when his hands were so bloody and incapable of doing more. I would have thought he could have got, come down that net and done his job. But what you'll see in the story, and this is true to his testimony, is that he kept praying to God, help me to get just one more. Help me to get just one more. By the end of that night, this young man, rooted by scripture, guided by his faith in God, saved over a hundred men while escaping the saber and escaping uh, bombs going off around him just to keep saving one more. You see, he was captivated by the understanding of the good shepherd that says, I am not satisfied with what's been accomplished so far. There is more to be saved. That is the good shepherd. That is the good shepherd that we should be trusting in. That giving our life and then emulating him, as it says to elders, as Peter said, you should be like the good shepherd who considers the sheep somebody to be cared for and nurtured, but also like the good shepherd who is not satisfied with the 99. Jesus says in verse 17 once again, says, the reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. So yes, he's that shepherd leader that is all in, willing to give his life, and he says so three times. In verse 11, verse 15, and verse 17, he says, I lay down my life for the sheep. I am willing to become a lamb for the sake of saving the entire flock and continuing to go after one more. Do you want him? As your shepherd leader, I do. Because if left to myself without his example, I would be just a hired hand. And so would each of us here in this room. You see, Jesus cares, and so does the Father. And they're willing to fight, even if it means only pulling at a piece of an ear and two hind legs. Let's pray. Jesus, I recognize that many of our leaders that we've seen in, with our own eyes haven't been that great shepherd. We've seen some good ones, but man, nothing rises to the level that you are as the good shepherd. You truly love your sheep. You know them intimately. You know them by name. And if the enemy comes to seek, kill, and destroy, you don't run away. 
You go right to the mouth of the adversary and you rescue. Thank you that you weren't satisfied years and years and years ago with the amount that you had in your flock that you continue to add one more. We are truly grateful that your vision is to continue to grow your flock and that you're willing to do so and get bloody while doing that. So may you as the good shepherd mark this church and the churches around us with the same tenacity for the good news of Jesus Christ. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand please as we conclude?
1 John 3.16 says this. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters as well. You see, the example of the good shepherd to lay down his life for the sheep is meant to be carried on by all of us. Following his example, like Christ, being the good shepherd, then being willing to lay down our life, our comforts for the sake of others. That is the calling upon the church. We've been praying for a long time for God to do a revival of the church. Because we believe that with revival, where the hearts of those who call upon the name of Jesus Christ, being all in on loving Jesus and Jesus guiding all their steps and, and his, him being the vision by which they fix their eyes upon, that we believe when a church is there, you will see a harvest of lost souls coming to Jesus. Because when the church is on fire, the world sees that which it needs. And they become followers of the light that is shown through the church, Jesus Christ. And so as I shared in the weekly video a couple weeks ago is that in the month of November, we're calling the church to prayer for this month. Praying that God will do a new work in your heart and that you will fall in love with Jesus anew. We've even provided a calendar by which, if you want, it's just a tool. It's not the exclusive tool, but it's a tool. We created a calendar by which you can then daily be praying about the things together along with the rest of the church. Praying for that which will revive the heart of each of us. Because I believe that personal revival, if that is happening in individuals, then when it, it will collectively become the church and revival before we even declare it will have already begun. And then we'll see people come to Jesus because Jesus is being lived out loud by his church. So this morning, as we are fixing our eyes upon Jesus, we're going to conclude by praying for that revival. And we're also going to pray for our country. This is a special week. It's an opportunity to vote. We are given a privilege that many countries do not have. And it is an opportunity that should be seized by those who call upon Christ. Every vote does count. If you think that your vote does not, then if everybody was to follow your lead by not voting, what would be the results? We show an example and a legacy to those who come behind us that we invest ourselves into our country and show responsibility as a citizen. But we are informed by how we vote from scripture. Now I know that for many of you, you have been burdened by what has happened over the last few weeks. Burdened by the unrest, even in Philadelphia nearby. We're concerned for the spirit of division. We've spoken to these things, we've prayed for these things, but it's not the message of the world or the hope of a man in an office that we can provide an answer to these issues. But it's Jesus himself who can change the hearts of a president and change the hearts of a Congress and change the hearts of a nation. 
But I believe the hope for the nations in Jesus through his church. And so we're going to pray. And would you join me in that? Choose whatever posture you wish. But I want your heart, if you will, to be humble before God in this moment. Jesus, as we call this church to prayer and to renewed love for you, even with the half-hearted attempt at this, Lord, would you meet them fully? Reveal yourself anew and afresh that we can realize where we have maybe allowed sin to infiltrate or we've allowed things to harass us and and hinder us from seeing the full measure of what you would have for our lives. Humble our hearts. Speak to us anew. Give us new cause, new purpose. That whatever our careers are, they're secondary to that which you have called the need to do. That when we lift the hammer, or we we lift the pen, or, or we use the voice in whatever our jobs are, that we do so rooted in the purposes of being a light and a salt to a a people that are so much in need of good news. God, would you bring revival in the individual hearts of those who come to you? And that, God, you will put this upon the hearts of many to pray and to seek your face. And that they will humble themselves And confess the sins that have easily entangled us. So that the church will be revived, not for our own sake, but for the sake of those who are not yet in the pen. Help us to be like Jesus, not satisfied. Just one more. Living that out. And God, you say that we're to pray for our leaders. And specifically in scripture, when you say to pray for our leaders, is so that it will go well for the church, that there would be a coverage, a protection, so that the church can do its ministry. So God, whatever the next four years hold, I ask that it will give freedom and greater motivation for the church to thrive. Lord, I would pray that's because it's under the peaceful leadership. Not because it would be under an oppressive leadership. God, I, I just ask that the next four years, what I want more than anything is for the church to get its legs and to stand up for Jesus again and anew. And so, Lord, I pray that there would be peace post-Tuesday. I pray that, that there will not be riots or frustration in a manner that would shame you and shame others, but rather, Lord, that the Spirit of Christ will permeate those who don't even know you. Complete pagans will realize that there's a call to something greater. And so, Lord, I do pray that Tuesday will bring about the best for the church. And, Lord, I trust in your sovereignty. I trust in your leadership and and your foreknowledge. I trust in your appointment. Guide our votes, Lord. May we be responsible citizens of heaven first and citizens of earth second. 
I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As 1 John said, we are to follow the example of the Good Shepherd and not just lay down our lives for our family, but to lay down our lives for all those who are brothers and sisters that are in need of saving. So let us go out armed with the gospel of good news and given the model of how to do so by the shepherd himself, Jesus Christ. If you'd like to pray with someone, we have the encounter room to my left that is back there and there'll be somebody in there that'll be glad to pray with you. We would love to share more about who Jesus is or to simply share the love of Jesus with someone who's hurting. God bless, you are dismissed and we're all praying together starting today. Amen.